This is a podcast about economics, not about homelessness, but I feel really strongly that these two things are inextricably intertwined. You know, it's not just a housing problem. It is also the sense of belonging, the sense of community. We need a, a much more robust system in order to deal with very real trauma that both gets people into homelessness and that comes from being homeless. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. You know, one of the things about living out here in Seattle, here in Washington State, is that we get to uh, be proud about having a very uh, progressive city, uh, a very progressive state, a very affluent uh, and forward-looking region. But there are two things here that uh, we're, we're kind of ashamed of. One is we have by far the most regressive tax code in the country. And the other is we have one of the highest rates of homelessness in the country. And, you know, I don't think that they are, are unconnected. Yeah. You know, this is a podcast about economics, not about homelessness. But I feel really strongly that these two things are inextricably intertwined. And I'm drawn to believe that our homelessness problem is a consequence of the social and economic arrangements we have chosen, both in our city and our country. And to be clear, everywhere in the country is facing homelessness at historically high rates right now. But even here in this supposedly very progressive city slash county, we can't come to an agreement about how we should even deal with or help our most vulnerable populations. And we can't even come to an agreement about how how we got to where we are. And, and you know, so much of it uh, has to do with um, with policy choices, as we talk about a lot on this podcast, that the a lot of the problems we face today are a result of specific choices we've made uh, over the past 40 years. But also, I think when it comes to homelessness, it's about how we misunderstand the problem. If you don't understand the problem, uh, you're not going to be able to uh, solve it. If you believe that homelessness is just people choosing to be homeless, because <laughs> man, look at all the great services that uh, Seattle provides. Let's yeah. move to Seattle. Well, then you're not going to come up with uh, the proper solutions. You 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 won't have the funding for uh, uh, mental illness, uh, for behavioral issues. You won't take into account the high rates of trauma that people experience prior to homelessness, not to mention the high rates of trauma that they experience uh, within homelessness. Uh, and that's going to, you know, as we said before, it's uh, if you don't understand the problem, if you're telling the wrong story, uh, you're going to end up with uh, the wrong policies. Yeah. But to be clear, you know, the, the numbers kind of don't really lie. A 2018 study found that in communities where people spend more than 32% of their income on rent, uh, you can expect a much more rapid increase in homelessness. 
and that study estimates that the scale of homelessness nationwide has been undercounted by roughly 115,000 people or 20%. And the other piece of data that I think is just so persuasive is mm-hmm. this 2017 bit of research that showed that a $100 average increase in rent in a place is associated with an increase in homelessness of between 6 and 32%. So a big part of the problem is the disconnect between the wages that people earn and the cost of housing. When you take that the, the that cost burden number and they say people who spend more than 32% of their income on on rent, you know, that is a function of both housing costs and income. You know, we we often rail against uh, neoliberalism, Nick, and uh, part of that neoliberal trickle down story is that people are poor uh, because of bad choices they made. And if they only made better choices, uh, they'd be doing as well as everybody else. But one thing we know is that people are not choosing to be homeless. Uh, people are homeless because they've fallen through an inadequate safety net uh, because we we didn't catch and and uh, treat their their traumas early uh, and uh, because of extremely high rates of inequality uh, where we have uh, flat wages and uh, rising uh, home prices. Yeah, you know, I'm super interested in talking to our guest today, Josephine Ensign, who is as in the weeds and on the front lines of homelessness as I think anybody we've ever talked to, who's both a professor in the School of Nursing here at the University of Washington, but also uh, has spent not just a career, but a life uh, directly interfacing with homeless people and helping them uh, to try to tease out what the city can do, and by extension, what the country can do to address this problem. Josephine Ensign, and I am a professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Washington, and have worked in terms of homelessness for about going on 40 years, uh, both as a nurse, as a researcher, as a, a policy policy worker and also as an author. And my most recent book is Skid Road on the Frontier of Health and Homelessness in an American City by Johns Hopkins University Press, which is my alma mater. And it uh, chronicles the history or the historical roots of homelessness in um, Seattle, King County with some through lines in terms of what we're dealing with now. So, uh, Josephine, you have been at this for a long time. What drew you to the work? Well, to tell you the truth, what drew me to the work was a service learning project that I had as an undergrad at Oberlin College. And I was a big sister for a foster care group home young woman who had been homeless and also had had fairly serious abuse in her early years and continued that when I I had a stint at Harvard Divinity School and was working with people experiencing homelessness in Boston. This was early 80s. And then when I moved back to my uh, hometown at Richmond, Virginia to go to nursing school, um, immediately got into volunteering and then working 
with people experiencing homelessness in Richmond. And this obviously was all during the time of what has become to be called the rise of new homelessness um, during you know, the Reagan years. Not that we can completely blame all of it on Reagan, but there definitely were federal policy changes that did not help. And so that's when I got into it, probably since 1979, when I was 19 years old. Wow, that's amazing. So I remember that period when, you know, I, I grew up in and around Philadelphia, and it was around that time, around 1980, the early 80s, when we started to see this rise. What were the policy changes uh, that led to those increases? Well, it was pretty complex, but what a lot of researchers and kind of policymakers and people who've worked in homelessness um, for this length of time uh, point to is the um, kind of steady defunding of HUD services, you know, housing, urban development in terms of support for low-income housing, redevelopments. There was the gentrification of inner, inner city areas that then displaced, you know, especially people, persons of color and people living um, intergenerationally in, in poverty. So that, that's one of the main factors. And then also, and this actually started in the late 50s and then uh, took off during the civil rights era in the 1960s, but we started seeing more of the kind of rolling effects of it in terms of deinstitutionalization of people with pretty severe mental health issues, developmental um, issues, and you know where it was very well-intentioned, a federal policy to try and have much more community-based uh, mental health treatment. And uh, again, really good idea, get away from you know the one flew, flew over the cuckoo's mm -hmm. nest kind of kind of abuses that were happening in the institutions like that. But the federal government and also states did not adequately fund the community health centers and all of the support programs that were needed with that, with supportive housing. So we started seeing you know, more severely impacted people um, on the streets and in our shelters. Yeah, interesting. So in the quickest, sort of the most efficient way that you can, when your friends ask you, you know, why do we have such a bad homelessness problem in Seattle and around the country? What is your response? Like, how do you explain the causes? In the shortest, most succinct way possible. Yeah, no, I know. So, yeah, because we all we always want kind of a quick, um, yeah. uh, an easy answer. What I what I say now is housing and you know it's not just a housing problem. You know, a lot yeah. of people, I think, very well intentioned. Um, uh, start have started using the term houselessness instead of homelessness which I understand where they're coming from, but it's not just a problem with inadequate, you know, low income and supportive housing. It is also the sense of belonging, the sense of community, the community supports in terms of health and social services that are needed um, for people to be safe and healthy and happy in uh, low income and long-term permanent housing. Hmm. Interesting. So we know, uh, obviously, that there's that significant trauma often precedes the experience of being homeless. 
but our policy around caring for those experiencing homelessness is not really built with that in mind, is it? No, it's not. And this is one of my biggest frustrations with our current system. If you look at the, the data for people experiencing homelessness, and especially for people experiencing chronic homelessness, you know, which is more extended, like homelessness for a year, or at least four times, episodic times in the past three years, the, um, the ACE scores, you know, the adverse childhood events, you know, which is a, a very, a very well-tested, researched, and easy to, to do um, test, the ACE scores are like off the charts, anything over four um, of like severe uh, childhood events, traumatic events, like um, you know, like sexual abuse, like physical abuse, but also seeing violence in the home, um, those types of things that, that for people experiencing homelessness, the fact that they have had really serious um, childhood traumas and, that have not been addressed. Because the other thing that's super important for us to understand is that with with interventions, with quick interventions and um, inappropriate counseling and treatment, you know, for the child and for the family, that those um, those can be overcome and can actually become sources of strength. But yes, uh, traumas oftentimes precede homelessness and then are compounded by the actual, um, you know, uh, being homeless, which is very unsafe and unsettling for all of us, um, that then complicates uh, kind of getting out of homelessness and being healthy and, and have more stable living situations. Surely we don't have I mean, we, do we have more mental illness and more childhood trauma than we had in the past? Or I'm assuming the, the rise in homelessness is attributable to other issues. Yes. I mean, I, I'm talking kind of nationally now, not just in Seattle. Right. Um, but I think, I mean, obviously um, stresses on families because, you know, most families really want to be and most parents or parenting figures want to be you know, good, good parents, good guardians of their children, but the stressors on them in terms of economic kinds of um, fallout, being evicted, all of those types of things can, can filter down to frustrations and violence um, uh, uh, towards their children. And then, uh, you know, we've seen this uh, again nationally, but in Seattle as well, a really severe rise in intimate partner violence and also domestic violence during the pandemic. And, and that compounded for children and adolescents with the fact that they haven't been able to be in school where they're school nurses and in many cases, at least in the Seattle area, school-based clinics um, for um, like middle school and high school, where that can kind of be screened for and also um, kind of tied into other social services and supports. So I think it act, there actually has been an increase. And we were seeing this uh, in Seattle and King County, even before the pandemic. Because in, in your book, you, you chronicle the history of homelessness in Seattle. And, you know, our history, as you describe it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty mean to the poor. It's pretty gnarly. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. Yes. You know, I learned a lot about, about Seattle and King County 
Um, I think one of the most surprising things to me uh, was being able to chronicle because you know, Seattle is relatively a relatively new new city in terms of you know the, the history of our country. Um, obviously, uh, in terms of settler colonialism, um, part of it, and being able to chronicle, you know, from the very beginning with Doc Maynard and early, or you know, Henry Yesler, how they were confronted with, you know, like our first uh, official homeless homeless person who was also mentally ill, sailor, and what to do about him, and then the the Washington territorial and then state laws um, that were basically our poor laws. And how those were adapted from, you know, from English poor laws, and how our kind of social stratification and how we how we view and treat people experiencing poverty is really pretty cruel. But I mean, do we do it worse than other places? We being Seattle, yeah, places like Delaware, where they literally branded people who okay. um, were. Yeah, I mean, they, they had to have armbands, you know, saying I'm a poor person. So, no, they did not. And, you know, in jails. Uh, yeah. My personal view is that in a society where more and more families are economically fragile, one of the byproducts of that is that families that used to be able to deal successfully with a difficulty within the family now don't have the resilience to do it. And, the, and that person becomes homeless. So do, do you agree with that? I mean, that economic inequality and, you know, rising housing prices and all the sort of economic stresses on people are driving this problem? Yeah, no, it's an, it's an interesting point. Um, I mean, obviously, there's also the whole thing of, of where, especially within healthcare, social services, where we, where we screen for and recognize um, yeah. into intimate partner violence um, right. more. But I think the other thing besides, you know, rising inequality and, and especially in the Seattle area, um, our housing crisis, there's also been, um, and again, before, before Reagan, can't completely blame it all on him, but it definitely accelerated um, with, with his presidency of cutting back on social services and supports right. um, at the federal level and then also, you know, states um, having to you know, balance their budgets, like in the case of Washington, and having to, to cut certain things. So I think that kind of safety net, which, um, especially because I've done, I've lived in and done research in the UK, um, they're not perfect, obviously, but, you know, they have a more robust, well, they have a national healthcare service for one thing, but they have right. a more robust social um, service uh, safety net. And so I think that that's a big factor as well. Yeah, it has to be because, I mean, you know, I'm actually in London right now huh? and I was in Madrid and Barcelona last week. And, you know, you very occasionally see people on the street in these big cities, but it, it's at a hundredth the rate at which you see it in the United States at the most fundamental level, it has to be deeply connected to the healthcare system, the social safety net system, and just the, you know, the generally sort of healthier state of working in middle-class families in those places as a consequence of those supports. Right, right. Josephine, you point out in the book that Seattle has the, the third highest number 
of homeless in the country after New York and San Francisco and likely the highest per capita. What is it about Seattle then? Well, and one thing, um, you know, the, the, the data in terms of being able to, to make those um, kind of comparisons in urban areas in the U.S. about homelessness, the, um, those got paused during the pandemic because we couldn't right. do, you know, we couldn't do yeah. the, um, the one night count last January. They're hoping to do it this January. You know, I think, again, and looking back at the history from the very beginning of, again, you know, settler colonial um, founding of Seattle, we've had one of the highest uh, per capita uh, rates of homelessness um, uh, in the country. And a lot For of how that long? For since, how long? since the beginning, because if you think about it, what were what were the main industries, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of Seattle was logging, fishing, high rates of injuries, mostly mostly men who were separated from their families came came west or came from other countries to work and um, and it was very seasonal work and um, and so like during the off season they really didn't have a place to stay so they would camp out on Seattle beaches um, you know the shanty towns that kind of grew up down in Pioneer Square and yeah, so again looking at that just in terms of the history of the founding of Seattle what what um, traditionally our industries have been based on. And, and then also the whole thing, and that's why I have Frontier um, still in the title of my book, because um, Seattle has always been kind of a frontier, you know, the end, the end of the world kind of a thing in terms of the Western notion of you just go out West to find your fortune. Um, and even, you know, obviously the, um, as the railroads were being built, it was literally the end of the line. So that's why I think that we have traditionally had one of the highest rates of homelessness. And then and just looking at the more contemporary um, picture of it, the, um, you know, it's, it's a city of opportunity, you know, some of the richest people in the world, um, but it's also you know, the contrast with people in abject poverty and homelessness, and especially around the cost of living, um, and especially the cost of housing has been a, a main factor. And, you know, it is interesting, I have to remind people that the overwhelming majority of people who are homeless in Seattle first became homeless in Washington state. They didn't like move here. Um, you know, mm -hmm. intent, intent right. on becoming homeless because, you know, we're the land of plenty for people who are homeless. That's not the case. Um, I've had a lot of patients. Um, I had one on, on Sunday, a woman who moved here, you know, like from Kentucky, um, used all of her savings to move out here with a promise of a job that fell through. And then, um, you know, just the cost of living, she's living in shelters and, you know, and she's, highly educated too. So. Yeah, that, that, that's an important point that people move out here for the opportunity. You point out, I, I think you cite that Raj Chetty study right. that, that, that actually it, Seattle is one of the places where uh, people growing up in poverty have the best chance of getting out. Moves to opportunity, yes. And that's, yeah. um, that's true kind of like overall for Seattle, but there definitely are um, kind of zip codes and, and neighborhoods that have 
that highest possibility of moves to opportunity, and they're not necessarily the richest um, zip codes. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's really based on diversity. You know, two parent or at least supportive uh, parenting for kids, and then also the quality of public schools, which I think is also a really important point for all of us <laughs> to right. recognize. It's not private schools; it's public schools. So, what do you think is the biggest disconnect? You know, obviously, we've become a very affluent city. I have trouble talking to my neighbors uh, about about this issue. You know, in in your conversations, what is it that people just we're not getting about this issue, and and that gets in the way of us solving it. That that misunderstanding. Yes, and this again, having lived, worked, listened, you know, within within kind of the whole sphere of homelessness for forty years. I mean, there's always that kind of um, backlash in our tendency, especially in our country, with a whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps of mm-hmm. wanting to blame individuals. Of so, you know, again, you hear, oh, they're they're you know all mentally ill. They need to be locked up at Western State. Um, the police need to do more, um, and or that you know they're all they're all drug users. You know, like some of the the really bad news things, like uh, Seattle's dying, have have yeah. uh, portrayed. And so that's, I mean, that's just been a constant. I mean, I heard it, you know, back in Boston and back in Richmond. Uh, ages ago, but of, but of helping people if they're open to it, right? <laughs> Just like with anything else, um, kind of using motivational interviewing skills of trying to meet them with where their values are, and if they're open to uh, having some education on it, um, not from a lecturing perspective, but from um, like, have you have you bought a real change newspaper? And if you have, you know, at your local local market or whatever, have you talked with a vendor? And um, not in an intrusive way, but have you started to get to know them? Or have you volunteered with, I don't know, the window of kindness at facing homelessness and of helping people understand more of the stories and the lived experience of what people um, have to deal with when they're homeless and starting to see them as people um, instead of uh, blaming them for their problems and you know why are they in my park why are they you know set up in a, in a tent next door which are you know legitimate frustrations but that's what I say yeah well maybe I'll just buy people your book since it is uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it actually it, it it really because you know, you you provide that narrative history, you're telling these personal stories, it really does, I think, get at uh, the issue in a way that statistics clearly cannot. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, Thanks. okay. So, Josephine, one of the questions we always ask our um, guests is the um, the benevolent dictator question. Which oh, is, yeah. if, you, if you were in charge, what would you do? And and that means unlimited funds. Yeah. Like, oh, like no, no, no laws or constitution yeah. getting in your way. How would yeah, you address yeah, yeah, this? Well, how do you fix this problem? Right. What, what should we do? Well, first of all, I find hope in in the new newly formed um, you know home, King County Homelessness Regional Authority because it's it's been piecemeal for so long and you know places kind of working against each other. I also find encouragement and would and would fund more um, in terms of you know what Mark um, Duns is doing 
them with a lived experience in the past of homelessness, I think that's super important. You know, they're starting on the downtown corridor, I'm sure with, you know, pressure from businesses, but okay, that is where the most people visibly homeless are. I think the, the biggest thing that I would fund is ongoing supportive services in shelters and day shelters and outreach programs that includes really good quality mental health and substance use um, kind of services because those are so needed. I mean, I saw, uh, again, a woman this past Sunday at a clinic at a, at a women's shelter and, you know, the, the, the lack of her being able to have trust to go to any place, any institution for mental health services, um, it doesn't exist. So having much more in terms of uh, the supportive services for housing first models of care that are quality and that are sustainable, because if they're not quality and they're not sustainable, it actually does more harm, I think, than good for people trying to become more stable in housing and health. Awesome. And uh, we always ask one final question, uh, although it's not hard to understand uh, your motivations, but why do you do this work? Um, because I have to. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, and because I have to, it's just, it's something that, you know, uh, obviously since the beginning of my identity formation, it's, uh, it's been something that I'm, I'm passionate about. You know, again, having lived through a version of homelessness um, as a young adult of knowing that part of it. I know many other people don't have the advantages that I have for getting out of that fairly quickly, but I feel, I feel that it's just something that I have to do, not you know, necessarily from a religious you know, calling perspective, but just from a humanistic um, perspective. It's something that I love. I love working you know, with people and trying to build trust and connect them with services that they might want and benefit from. And then also, you know, from a kind of policy perspective, too, of looking at what we can do as a society to kind of bend the arc on this and improve the situation for all of our neighbors. Well, thank you for being with us. Well, thank really you for having fascinating. me. Fascinating. So, Goldie, we should explain to our listeners what real change is, because Josephine mentioned it. Right. So uh, Real Change is a weekly newspaper in Seattle that is um, partially written and, and edited by uh, homeless and uh, formerly uh, homeless people, but uh, more importantly, distributed by the homeless. Yeah. So there are Real Change vendors throughout the city, and I think it's two bucks an issue now, and it's, uh, it's a way to get them back into work and hopefully back into a home. What, what are your takeaways, Goldie? Well, you know, I think, again, and I urge people to read the book, it's, it's called uh, Skid Road on the Frontier of Health and Homelessness in an American City. And, and I wish a lot more Seattleites would read it so they'd understand the long history of homelessness in Seattle and how our, our instincts in responding to it are basically all wrong. My big takeaway from this conversation is that we don't do the one thing or the couple things that are necessary to be done. As Josephine points out, uh, we vastly underfund mental health and social services 
in Washington state and throughout the country. Uh, we need a, a much more robust system in order to deal uh, with you know, the very, very real trauma that both gets people into homelessness and that uh, comes from being homeless. Uh, but the other thing is there is a solution and it's actually not the most expensive solution, Nick, and that is house people. Build more housing, build more shelters, build more permanent supportive housing. Uh, I've seen estimates that say it costs between thirty dollars and $50,000 a year uh, every homeless person in terms of dealing with uh, the criminal justice system and emergency rooms and, and everything else. It's just so much cheaper to house people than it is to leave them homeless. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, you know, you reap what you sow. We have this neoliberal economic uh, system that's made a few right. people rich and everybody else more fragile. And homelessness is the inevitable output of that system. It's an outcome that you basically cannot avoid if you accept the economic system that we have. Again, please buy and read Josephine Ensign's new book, uh, Skid Road on the frontier of health and homelessness in an American city. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.